I am not sure where everybody's got this whole powerhouse idea. I don't, I don't know. I'm just a little girl from a little country town. But I will tell you, Chris, I've got some hopeful news for you. You can't be a worse dancer than Marshall. <laughs> so, so, And how cool is this? There's some research out that adults between the ages of 63 and 80, if you dance... 90 minutes a week, if you incorporate that into your regular activity, your hypocalmus, not your thalamus, your hypocalmus actually gets bigger and slows down decline. So Marshall and I are joining line dancing in September, actually. So you and Lisa may want to consider coming alongside and uh, being part of that with us. Well, good morning, First Assembly. Great to see you. How many are happy for the reprieve of the hot weather? Just breathe deeply in the sanctuary this morning. That's how we think. We're from Okotoks, and uh, it was shocking to find out that on Friday, it was hotter in Okotoks, Alberta, than where our daughter lives in Phoenix, Arizona. Now, how in the middle of summer? I mean, how is it possible? And, uh, but it was, and so if you're celebrating the cool couple of days we've got, we're certainly celebrating that with you. Always a privilege to be able to open God's Word. When Marshall was, uh, when we were pastoring in Ontario, I had a little bit more of opportunity to stand up here and preach, so I haven't done this for a few years now. Uh, Pastor Ben asked me several weeks ago if I would share, and as I'm looking around today, he's not here which means he's hedged his bets, and if this does not go well this morning, he is not going to be on site. So that's, so we're all prayerful, actually, that the Lord will come through for us. Well, we're in the middle of this great series on the book of Acts, and uh, if you've been traveling, you haven't been here, maybe you're just checking us out this morning at First Assembly, we welcome you. As Chris said, we're so happy that you're here, but we'd really encourage you to go to the website and take a listen, follow the prompts, and take a listen at the messages that maybe you've missed in this series on Acts. It has been, there's been a good word every week. It's been so encouraging. The book of Acts for us is an exceedingly important book. It's, it's the history of our brothers and sisters from the first century church. If there was an AncestryDNA.com for spiritual lineage, we would actually trace ours back to the book of Acts. Acts 2, and Casey talked about this last week, it tells the story of 120 believers gathered in the upper room. The Bible says they were all with one accord, so all one heart, and the Bible says the Holy Spirit came down, descended, and it sounded like a mighty rushing wind was filling the place. And then what looked like fire, tongues of fire, flames, sat on the top of these heads, 120 of them. And they left that room, and they were never the same again. The book of Acts, it gives an eye witness account to the flame that came and how it turned into wildfire, a good wildfire, and it began to spread across the then known world. These last few summers for us, we've moved from Ontario, and we have evidence all around us of fires burning. They said this morning, the news says, there's over 500 fires burning right now in the province of BC. It starts with the tiniest of flames. There are actually people who are paid to track the fire and, and try and determine where it's going to end up. 
People in positions of power, they spare no money, and they bring in resources from all over the world to try and put these fires out. I was watching, March and I were watching a documentary last week about the Valley Fire in California. Um, it was two years ago, but it was so gripping. I, I, couldn't, I couldn't take my eyes off it, and I knew it was two years ago because they were talking to the people that had survived the fire, but I was so into this documentary. About an hour and a half in, I realized I'd been praying for them in the spirit for like a long time, and, and they were okay. They were the survivors, but this is what happens. We, we see the devastation of these fires, and it's so gripping for us, but conversely this morning... I'm so happy to tell you that this fire that started in the book of Acts, it spread across the Roman Empire. And instead of bringing death and destructions like the fire we're seeing now, it was bringing life and abundance and hope. And I can report to you today as one who is tracking the progress of this fire that it has defied all efforts to be extinguished and it is sweeping our world 2,000 years later. And so, well, the book of Acts is a history book. It's not just a history book. It's a book of theology and of Christian practice. It is why, in part, at least, we believe what we do as a faith community. It's why we believe that Christ still heals today. It's why we believe that deliverance and freedom is our spiritual birthright. It's why we believe the Holy Spirit is still active in the life of believers. And as we take it, it changes our communities and our workplace and our families to change our church, and together we should change the world that we live in. This book of Acts is a tipping point. It is a game changer for us as believers, and today we're going to be looking at chapter 16. I need to tell you this morning before I even start that it's quite possible I'm not going to say anything that you don't already know. You've likely heard everything that I'm going to say, and probably more than once. When our kids were little, really little, I would say to them as they were getting ready for school in kindergarten grade one, I would say, okay, okay, the bus is just about ready to come. Don't forget your lunch pail. Get everything ready. And, oh, don't, don't forget your homework. And if you got a jacket, the weather's going to be cool. Get everything. And, and, and then as the time got closer to the bus, I would say those things over. And when the kids were really little, they were more tolerant of this. But as they got older, they would say, why do you keep saying those same things over and over again? And I would say, because I'm your mother. And I have a gift of reminding. It's in 1 Corinthians. You just have to read it hard, but it is in there with all those other gifts. It's a gift of reminding. But it seems to me that the older I get and the more I travel, it appears that the gift of reminding has actually morphed into a ministry of reminding. Now, that doesn't look so great on a business card, you know? People want to have you in to speak, and you give them the business card, and they're hoping to see healing ministry, prophetic ministry, deliverance ministry, reminding ministry doesn't have a whole lot of appeal. But here's what I realize. Sometimes when life gets hard, life gets confusing, life gets disappointing, or life gets crazy, you can actually forget what you know. And sometimes you just need someone to remind you of what you know, but for some reason you've forgotten. And maybe today, that someone will be me. Let me give you some framework for this chapter 16, 
of Acts. It's Paul's sixth, his second missionary journey, and he has with him Silas, Timothy, and the beloved physician Luke. Now, it was Luke who actually wrote the book of Acts. The Bible tells us in the first few verses of chapter 16, wherever Paul and his companions went, that the believers were encouraged, and the churches, just newly established churches, they were growing. This was great news. This is, this is verse 6, 7, and 8 on the screen this morning. Paul and Silas traveled through the area of Phrygia and Galatia because the Holy Spirit had prevented them from preaching the word in the province of Asia at that time. Then coming to the borders of Mysia, they headed north to the province of Bithynia, but again the Spirit of God did not allow them to go in. So instead they went through Mysia to the seaport of Troas. These are three really interesting verses, and I want to talk about them for a minute because they're part of the context. They pull it together where I'm headed this morning. How many have found that sometimes in our lives, without explaining why, God just says no? He just says no. Paul and Silas headed in their hearts, and I'm guessing they'd already downloaded it in Google Maps. They were headed to Asia, and the Spirit of the Lord says, not so fast. Not so fast. Have you ever been on a trip with anyone, someone in the vehicle, and they decide that they don't want to go where the rest of you have already decided that you're going? So scripture doesn't tell us what the conversation was between Paul and Silas and Luke and Timothy. It just says that they turned north and they, had to, they headed to Bithynia. And then they get to where they think they're going, and the Holy Spirit says, recalculating. We used to have a GPS, and we called her Gabby because she talked a lot because we never end up going where we thought we were going, and we were going the road where we thought we were supposed to go, and Gabby would say, recalculating in the nicest of voices. This is the Holy Spirit saying to Paul and Silas, don't go there. Don't go there. Anyone knowing that in their lives, the Holy Spirit, don't go there. It is the restraining work of the Spirit of God in our lives. Sometimes with us, he does like he did with Paul, and he says to us, don't go there. And it may be a physical location. He doesn't want you to go to that place, that province, that city, that house, that party, that celebration, and the restraining work of God says, don't go there. It might not be something, a place that he doesn't want you to go. It might actually be, and this is the worst, something that he doesn't want you to say. And you want to say that so bad because you had it all figured out in your head. She said that, and then you'd say that, and when she said that, you'd say that, and it was, it was awesome, and you know you're right, and they're wrong, and you so want to say it, and you have an opportunity, and it's a perfect opportunity, and just before you open your mouth, the Holy Spirit of God says, don't go there. Or, or maybe he's trying to keep you from a certain way of thinking, a pattern of thought. Maybe your mind is like a runaway train, and it starts here, and before you know it, you, you're all the way down the track, and you've derailed, and there's no hope, and there's no God, and there's no, there's no life down there, and you don't even know how you got there, and it happened in 45 seconds. And the Holy Spirit of God, the restraining work of the Holy Spirit says, don't go there. 
It's quite likely that there's someone here this morning and the Holy Spirit has been witnessing to you about this. Don't think like that. Don't say that. Don't go there. And there are scores of us that could tell you this morning when we didn't listen to his voice and the regret that follows that. So this morning I say, heed the voice of the Spirit. Well, we know Paul and Silas they obeyed and they find themselves at the seaport of Troas. And this is verses 9 and 10. That night Paul had a vision. A man from Macedonia in northern Greece was standing there pleading with him, come over to Macedonia and help us. And we decided to leave for Macedonia at once, having concluded that God was calling us to preach the good news there. How many would like a vision in the night to confirm God's plan in your life? Me too. Let me paraphrase verses 11 through 15. The group sets sail, and they end up in the Roman colony of Philippi. And on Sabbath, they don't go to the synagogue, but they go down to the riverbank where they find a group of women who are together in prayer. They believed probably in Jehovah, but hadn't met Messiah yet. One of those women was Lydia. She was a wealthy businesswoman, and she dealt in purple fabrics, which was luxurious and expensive. So she was a woman of substance. And the Bible says that as Paul was speaking, the Lord opened Lydia's heart, and she believed. And she and her household were saved and baptized. And then she invited Paul in that group to her home. This whole idea of household faith just grips me. Chapter 16 of Acts only has 40 verses, but there's two narratives in there of Lydia and then a jailer that we're going to read in just a few minutes, where both of them came to household faith. It says they believed and their whole household was saved and baptized. Let me tell you why this is important to me. My mom and dad were home mission workers and they had churches where there wasn't a lot of people. There, there wasn't a lot of money. There wasn't actually a lot of anything. And in one of those churches, my three older siblings, I'm one of five, all walked away from faith. Well, you can imagine what that does to the heart of a, a mother and a father. And my mother would read Read these stories of household faith, and it would so grip her at the core of who she was. And she would search the Bible, and she would begin to read about, about children coming back to the Lord and, and God's promises. Every promise he makes are yes and amen in Christ. And she began to hang on to those. And one of her favorite ones was Isaiah 54, 13. All your children will be taught of God, and great will be the peace of them. And my mom was a tiny little thing, four foot 11 and three foot quarters. But I am telling you, in the spirit, she was mighty. And she would pray that verse and shout that verse and sing that verse and travail over that verse and weep over that verse. And she would say it over and over again and change the pronoun. All my children will be taught of God and great will be the peace of them. And people over the years would come to her and they would say, Irene, Irene, your daughter's back now. Your two youngest kids are in the ministry. Three out of five isn't bad, Irene. That's pretty good. And my mom, at four foot eleven, would look up and use her finger if she needed, and she would say, "Don't you ever say that." 
that to me again. The Bible doesn't say almost all of your children will come to faith and believe in God. Almost a good percentage of them, three out of five is pretty good, two-thirds, three-quarters. It doesn't say that. The Word says all your children will be taught of God, and great will be the peace of them. And that's where my mother camped. And this morning, if you're here and you're praying for your kids or your parents or your siblings, and it looks like it's getting worse, I want you to know this morning, don't give up this concept of household faith in all your children is a godly principle. Let me encourage you this morning. Back to our story, as you might imagine, Paul and Silas and Luke and Timothy are thinking, man, is this not great? We did exactly what we were told to do. We didn't go there, and we didn't go there, and then we had a vision, and it said, come here, and we did exactly what God told us, and look at how things are working out. We have a place to stay. Lydia's cooking us good food. She's actually resourcing us. People are getting saved. This is awesome. Not for long. This is verses 16 through 24. One day as we were going down to the place of prayer, we met a slave girl who had a spirit that enabled her to tell the future. She earned a lot of money for her masters by telling fortunes. She followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, These men are the servants of the Most High God. They've come to tell you how to be saved. This went on day after day until Paul got so exasperated, he turned to the girl and he said to the demon in her, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And instantly it left her. Her master's hope of wealth were now shattered. So they grabbed Paul and Silas and they dragged them before the authorities at the marketplace. The whole city is in an uproar because of these Jews. They shouted to the city officials. They're teaching customs that are illegal for us as Romans to practice. Well, a mob, it quickly formed against Paul and Silas, and the city officials ordered them stripped and beaten with wooden rods. They were severely beaten, and they were thrown into prison. The jailer was ordered to make sure that they didn't escape. So he put them in the inner dungeon, and he clamped their feet in stocks. This young, demon-possessed girl was being exploited by her owners for a great deal of money. And when Paul cast that demon out, they were enraged. They dragged Paul and Silas to the city square, and they accused them of these illegal activities. There was this growing anti-Jewish mindset that was going through the country, and especially in this Roman colony of Philippi. And it didn't take long, as you might imagine then, for these few accusers to turn into a vicious mob. People often wonder, people wonder when they're reading the story, well, what about Luke and Timothy? What happened to them? Because it was the four of them were traveled together. Commentators say this, they believe that Luke and Timothy looked Gentile, like Gentiles, where, where Paul and Silas looked like Jews. So they took them and left Timothy and Luke alone. When I was a little girl in Sunday school, over 50, well over 50 years ago, I remember the flannel graph of this prison scene with Paul and Silas. And yet I read this scripture over today and I realize that those that made those flannel graphs all those years ago were trying to protect us from the horror of this scene. And it's a good thing. You have this bloodthirsty mob. They grab Paul and Silas. They are stripped, which was an extraordinary humiliation for a righteous Jew. And while naked, they're beaten with rods. I read different versions of this 
in different versions of the Bible to see if they said it differently. And, and they used words like severely beaten, beaten with many blows, flogged repeatedly. No matter what version, though, that you read it in, the truth is clear. It was brutal and it was bloody. Then they threw them into the, the prison. And the jailer, the Bible says, knowing that his own life was at risk if they escaped, he put them in the dungeon that was below the prison. Marshall and I have been there and seen this. And just to be sure they didn't escape, he clamped their feet in stocks. You have these two faithful servants of the Lord, naked, severely beaten, thrown in a dungeon, no life, no light, filthy, no food, rodent-infested, open wounds, and their legs splayed and clamped down in wood and iron stocks. Stocks in and of themselves were a means of torture. And let us be clear, we cheat these servants of the Lord if we believe that God anesthetized their pain. They felt it all. I read this over, and I don't know about you, but if it were me, I'd be thinking, how did this happen? We did exactly what you told us to do. We didn't go there, and we didn't go there, and we followed the vision, and, 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 and here we are. Did I not hear you? How did, how did we miss this? Because certainly this can't be part of God's plan. How did, how did I get it so wrong? And maybe like me, you can get stuck right there, trying to figure it all out. And yet today, friends, I'm here to remind you that this life of faith is not without heartache and struggle. We just have to open our Bibles and we see godly people walking through these trials, horrific circumstances. We, three, we see three Hebrew boys just um, declaring their allegiance to the Most High God in, in, the, in Babylon, such a heathen city. And, and, and what happens to them? They find themselves in a fiery furnace. And we have Daniel, who's ruled faithfully and shown himself to be righteous in the, in the eyes of God. And he prays openly, and what happens to him, he ends up in the lion's den. And I don't know if you realize this. I'd forgotten until I, read, I opened my Bible again. Do you know that when Daniel ended up in the lion's den, he was 80? And you would think, wow, you would think that a man that had lived his his whole life righteously, that God would have protected him. He was 80 in the lion's den. And we have Joseph. We know his story. He lives a life of integrity, refuses to sin. He ends up in prison, completely forgotten. And there's Jeremiah, who's boldly declaring the word of the Lord, doing exactly what God tells him to do. And they find a cistern that's free of water, and they lower him with ropes. And the Bible says he sinks up to his neck in mud. Well, maybe it's just the Old Testament where people struggle like that. Surely with the New Covenant, believers don't struggle and walk through trial and heartache like that. No. New Testament, still believers who are doing it right, obeying the Lord. Christ himself tells the disciples to get in the boat. And as they're in the middle of doing what he says, going to the other side of the lake, a storm so vicious blows in that these weathered fishermen think that they're going to die. And they were doing exactly what God told them to do. And you're not alone 
tonight, today, if you're in the middle of a circumstance and you're trying to figure out, this can't be God. This can't be God. Surely this stuff doesn't happen to us if we're in the middle of God's will. Chuck Swindoll says turmoil, difficulty, and hardship are not necessarily indicators of being out of God's will. On the contrary, they are often the very things that indicate we're smack in the middle of God's plan. Well, let's see how Paul and Silas responded to the situation you found, they found themselves in. I'm guessing you already know, don't you? I'm just here to remind you. This is verse 25. Around midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the other prisoners, they were listening. I read the response, and I immediately think of the verse in Hebrews. It's Hebrews 13, 15. Let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually. That is the fruit of our lips giving allegiance to his name. And this is what was happening here. Paul and Silas, they were offering this gift, this gift gift of praise. I was so touched this morning. I don't even know if Rafi realized what he was saying, but he kept saying, your voice matters. Your voice matters. Your voice matters. In the happy seasons of my life, when things were going well and the kids were doing great and God was answering prayers, it was easy to praise. But in difficult seasons, when I was losing my hearing and my brother was dying And it didn't even look like God was hearing my prayers, let alone answering my prayers. It was more difficult to praise. Maybe it's the same for you today. There were those times when God didn't come through for you the way that you thought he would. The medical test comes back positive, and your spouse wants a divorce, and your child is wayward, and the loan company has called in your mortgage, and God seems very far away, and you can't see his goodness, and circumstances seem to scream at you. He has left you. To praise God in those times requires personal sacrifice. It will not happen on accident. It's an act of our will to lay our all on the altar to a God that we don't understand. When we bring a sack of praise, sacrifice of praise, we choose to believe that although life is not going as we thought it would, hoped it would, prayed it would, God is still good. And he can be trusted in the middle of it all. If you've ever seen a sacrifice of praise, it quite simply will take your breath away. It was a Sunday night in our church, Waterloo Pentecostal Assembly, about 15 years ago. One of our beloved pastors was dying. And we knew that without a miracle, he was not going to survive. And he and his wife were there on that Sunday night, and they so caught my attention, I I actually couldn't even look away. And Bill was sitting beside Sharon. He was frail and gone. He was just a shadow of himself. But there was Sharon with her eyes closed and her face lifted to heaven, tears running down her face, despite the fact that her husband was sitting beside her and was not long for this world. And on her face, 
There was, how do I say, joy and pain mixed together? Because how many know you can hold sorrow and joy in your hand at the same time? And that's what was on her face. And her arms were raised in worship. And to have a broken heart and raised hands is a powerful thing to witness. And I will never forget, as long as I live, her sacrifice of praise. Sometimes you catch a glimpse of a sacrifice of praise, but every once in a while, you get close enough to hear one. It was the year 2000, and our daughter Jill was 12 years old. She and her dad were skiing that day, and I was working in the medical office, and where I worked, supervisor, and halfway through the day, one of the doctors came out, and he said, I've just taken a call from um, Grand River, and Jill had a fall today while she was skiing with Marshall, and she's broken her leg, and uh, it's a nasty break. The two bones underneath her knee, below her knee, have both been broken, and it's, it's nasty. So they're going to cast it, and they're going to send her home. And so I, I went home, and I'll never forget Marshall picking her up and uh, walking in the house with her, and she was sobbing and crying so much pain. And they had medicated her, but it wasn't touching the pain. And now what was most concerning to us is that her leg began to swell in that cast, and she was crying, cut it off, cut it off, cut it off. And I will tell you, I have a medical background, but it's until it's your kid crying in pain, you just, and many of you know this at a much deeper level than just a broken leg. And, and I felt helpless, and we, and we did the best we could. We made her a bed on the couch to try and keep her comfortable, and we medicated her and stayed right with her. I actually made a bed um, on the floor beside her, so if she needed anything in the night, I would, I would be right there. And through the night, she would rouse and cry, and I would give her as much medication as I could, um, but she would, she would weep, and, and I would hear her whimper. And then around midnight, I heard a sound. And I laid quietly, and I thought, what is that? And I wondered if we'd left a radio on in another part of the house, in the basement, or in the bedrooms, because I was hearing a, a song and I, and I got up just on my elbow to try and figure out, discern where that sound is coming from. And I looked over, and this little 12-year-old was singing. <laughs> and her eyes were closed, and she had tears running down the sides of her face. And, and she would sing a little bit, and then, and then the pain would choke it off, and she would sob, but she never stopped singing. And this is the song. I love you, Lord, and I lift my voice to worship you, O my soul, rejoice. Take joy, my King, in what you hear. Let it be a sweet, sweet sound in your 
And I put my head down, and I just began to weep because I thought, well, how is it that a little 12-year-old in the worst pain that she has ever known to that point would know that to offer the pain she was in would be a sweet sound in the voice of her father? I think sometimes we hear a beautiful choir and we think, wow, that must have really got God's attention. He must have loved that. And and I was thinking about Marshall and I, our graduation 35 years ago at Massey Hall, iconic Massey Hall, downtown Toronto. We were graduating from Eastern Pentecostal Bible College. We were all in our blue shirts, our blue suits and our white shirts, and hundreds of us joined our voices and we sang the Hallelujah Chorus. And I'm thinking, man, we... We got heaven's attention tonight. But I think there was a little 12-year-old girl with a broken leg and a broken hallelujah that made all of heaven stop and lean down to hear. And I think there was a pastor's wife whose husband was dying who captured the heart of God when she opened her mouth and she praised. And I think there were two faithful servants in a stinking dungeon with their backs laid bare that made a decision to open their mouths and praise well knowing that God could have spared them from it. And I don't want you to miss this. The Bible says that others were listening. The other prisoners that night were completely stunned by Paul and Silas's response to the torture they were enduring. And here's the truth. Others are always listening as believers are walking through adversity. I actually think, Casey, it's a tool of evangelism. And we don't need to fake our response. We must not fake our response, but we simply bring all that we are and all that we're going to, and we lay it at God's feet. And people that are watching and listening, they can't walk away easily from this. And they ask themselves, who are those people and who is the God that they serve? Beth Moore adds, we can preach the gospel in many ways, but the message is never more clear than when God's people refuse to cease their praises during great suffering. Verses 26 to 34 say, suddenly there was a massive earthquake, and the prison was shaken to its foundation, and all of the doors immediately flew open, and the chains of every prisoner fell off. The jailer woke up to see the prison doors wide open. He had assumed the prisoners had escaped, so he drew his sword to kill himself, but Paul shouted, stop. Don't kill yourself, we're all here. And the jailer called for lights, and he ran to the dungeon, and he fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. And he brought them out, and he asked them, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they replied, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, along with everyone in your household. And they shared the word of the Lord with them, and they all believed Even at that hour of the night, the jailer cared for them and washed their wounds, and he and everyone in the household were immediately baptized. Don't tell me praise doesn't matter. He brought them into his house, and he set a meal before them, and he and his entire household rejoiced because they all believed. Paul and Silas began to praise, and the very foundations of the earth began to shake so violently that all the prison doors swung open, and every chain on every prisoner snapped into. A sacrifice of praise brings God to his feet and compels him to applaud, and when God stands up and applauds, chains fall off and hearts cry out, what can we do to know your Jesus? As the worship team comes, I want to leave you with a question that Stephen Furtick asks, provoking 
for me this morning and maybe for you as well. Will your chains break your praise or will your praise break your chains? Will your chains break your praise or will your praise break your chains? God shows up in power when we praise in the midst of adversity. We talk a lot about spiritual warfare in our circle, but I want to tell you that I think a broken hallelujah is a mighty weapon against the enemy because it's a counterintuitive to everything that we would do in the natural. And when we open our mouths and praise anyway, I think it strikes a blow at the enemy. He stumbles backwards and it thwarts his plans. How do we as believers do this? I'm going to tell you the answer is acts two. The Holy Spirit, when it was given, it it doesn't just happen around us. It happens in us. And the Holy Spirit empowers us and enables us to open our mouths when our minds and our hearts say, I can't. The Holy Spirit says, I'll grace you to put on a concert of praise in the midst of your darkest hours. And today you may be in that dark place trying to figure out what's going on. What is God doing? I just, I want to tell you for as long as I've lived, this has been my thing. I want to figure it out. And yet how many know there's just some things you're never going to know until we get to heaven? You're just never going to understand. You're never going to know. And if you get stuck there, you'll be stuck there. We have to make a decision how we're going to respond. And let me add, it doesn't matter how long you've been there in that spot. And it doesn't matter how you got there. Maybe, maybe it's like Paul and Silas, and you did everything right. And you're looking around and saying, how did I get here? Or you did everything wrong. And you're like, I know exactly how I got here. Aren't you glad he's the same God, whether we do it all right or whether we do it all wrong? He's the same God. And it's our response that matters. And today we're going to open the altars and I want to invite you to come if you're just in a spot and you're like, God, I don't know why. It just doesn't seem fair. I don't understand why I'm here or I totally get why I'm here. I want to, we're we're just going to, I'm going to have you stand as a congregation and we're going to open the altars and you moving from where you are today to the altar is just your declaration. You're just saying, God, I don't, I don't care why I may never understand, but I'm going to deal a blow to the enemy today and I'm going to open my mouth and I'm going to begin to praise. And it may be a sacrifice like I've never been required to make. I never even thought I could do this, but I'm going to open my mouth in the midst of the challenge and I'm going to praise. I'm going to praise this morning as the worship team leads. We're opening the altars and asking you to come.